Now, please open your Bible. Second Timothy chapter one. If you didn't bring one again, there should be one near you. And we're going to look through today verses eight through 18. Chapter one in Paul's second letter to Timothy. So remember. Every week when we come to this study, remember every week when you come and read this letter, I want you to picture Timothy, I want you to picture Timothy in this church in Ephesus with enormous opposition in front of him. And I want you to picture Paul and remember where Paul is writing from. This is the last letter that we have written by Paul. It is written at the very end of his life. He is locked up in prison, most likely Mamertine prison in Rome. He's basically in a dungeon. He is alone. He has been abandoned. He is suffering. He is chained to a wall. And it's from this setting that Paul writes these words to Timothy. Paul is in a chamber awaiting execution. So in today's terms, he's on death row. It is only a matter of time. He knows before his life is going to be taken from him. And so at the end of his life, he grabs a pen and he writes this letter to a young man that he considers his son in the faith, Timothy. And we're looking at the words that Paul has to say to him. As Paul's life is drawing to a close, it doesn't end the way any of us would want our lives to end. None of us would wish that we were in Paul's situation. Those who are closest to him have abandoned him. He's enduring physical pain. He knows... When death is coming. Paul also knows. That. As his life draws to a lonely and painful end. That it is drawing to a lonely and painful end because he's a Christian. So imagine the temptation for Paul. To distance himself from Christ and his gospel at this point in his life. I mean, Paul knows that the, the pain that he is in, that the suffering that he is enduring, the, the loneliness that he finds himself in, that the reason that his life has come to this point is because of his allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's because he is refusing to turn his back on Christ. It's because he is clinging to Jesus and clinging to the good news of Jesus. He's clinging to the gospel. He's preaching the gospel. And that is causing him to experience great loneliness and pain. So imagine the temptation at some point along the way for Paul to distance himself from the source of that loneliness and that pain. To distance himself from Jesus Christ and to distance himself from the gospel. 
And he doesn't do it. All the way up until the end of his life. Or it reminds us of, of John Bunyan and, and many others, but John Bunyan, a pastor in the 17th century, who for preaching the gospel served 12 years in prison. 12 years in prison because he wouldn't distance himself from Jesus or the gospel. Okay, you have the account where he's locked up for a night, basically. And they say to him, you, you want more of this? Okay, stop preaching. Fall in line with our rules. This is in England. Fall in line with our rules. Teach this way. Preach this way. Order your church this way. And if not, you're going to be locked up. This is just a foretaste of what's coming for you. And you remember his response. He said, if you release me today, I will preach tomorrow. He's just completely honest with them. I'm not going to deceive you. I'm not going to try to have one more, you know, good night and good day at home. I'm not going to have my final meal. I would like you to release me. He doesn't say keep me locked up. I mean, I would like you to release me. He had a wife of one year, newlyweds, waiting for him at home. He had four young children from his first marriage. First wife gave him four wonderful children and died. Later married this new, beautiful, wonderful woman named Elizabeth, who was willing to care for all four of his children, the oldest of whom was 10 years old. Her name was Mary, and she was blind from birth and required so much care. I would rather, Bunyan would say, I would rather preach the gospel and be with my wife and be with my kids. But if you're going to make me choose, I mean, get this. If you're going to make me choose, I choose Jesus. And so began a 12-year sentence in prison. To go back to his wife and children, all he had to do was stop preaching the gospel. But he said, I will preach the gospel until moss grows on my forehead. In other words, until the end, I will not stop. I, I can not, he said from prison, I can not cut up my conscience. Can you imagine the temptation, though, at some point along the way to distance himself from Jesus, to distance himself from the gospel, to distance himself from God's people? And yet here we have Paul writing to Timothy, saying, Timothy, I know the pressure that you're under. And I know the temptation. But do not, verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Paul says, do not distance yourself from Christ or His gospel or of His people. Let's look at verse 8. First word you notice, therefore. Right, you know this if you've been here for a while. That's a big word. It's one of those connecting words. It's connecting what Paul has just said with what he's going to say. In other words, I've just given you 
a bunch of truth, and that's going to be foundational now. Therefore, and then he's going to give him this charge. In other words, what we looked at last week, verses 1 through 7, these bracing realities in your life, Timothy, these bracing realities are priming you to follow the charge that I'm going to give you to not be ashamed. Let's just read them real quick. Let's remember what we looked at last week and what Paul said, verses 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed. Because, Paul is saying, because of the reality of my prayers for you, because of the reality of my affection for you, because of the reality of my confidence in you, because of the reality of God's gifts that have been given to you, because of the reality of the indwelling Holy Spirit of power and love and self-control, based on these realities, Timothy, I am for you and God is for you, therefore... Do not be ashamed. He gives Timothy a charge. He says it negatively and positively. Don't do this. Do this. First, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. That word is four times in this little section of Scripture. Ashamed, 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 ashamed. Do not be ashamed. In other words, Timothy, do not shrink back from preaching the gospel. Do not be a puny Christian. Some of us have been puny Christians. Some of us are puny Christians. The heat gets turned on and we distance ourselves from Christ and the gospel and his people. We are ashamed of Christ, ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of his people. Paul tells Timothy, don't do that. 
Do not shrink back. Do not be weak and puny in your faith. Do not distance yourself from Christ. Do not, you remember the song, do not hide it under a bushel. Right, you learned that song? Maybe when you were a little kid, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. What's one of the verses? i got to be careful because I started to sing it in first service and everybody joined with me. And it was one of those, again, cultish moments in our church that we're going to avoid this round. <laughs> it's for kids, right? We're beyond that. But we can say the words. But you remember one of the lines, hide it under a bushel? Huh? No. I'm going to let it shine. This is what Paul is telling Timothy. Do not be ashamed. Do not, I don't even know what a bushel is, but it must be a covering. I think it's like a basket. Do not hide it under a bushel. Don't conceal your allegiance to Christ. It may come with a consequence. But do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Now, the temptation to be ashamed for Timothy could have partly been rooted in his temperament. We know that he was timid, shy, unconfident. He was an unassuming man. And so the temptation to distance himself, it may have been there because of his personality. But we know for sure because of the context that when Paul here says, do not be ashamed, that the temptation to be ashamed for Timothy is due to the threat of suffering. Because this is what Paul is going to talk about now. It's the threat of suffering. Jesus suffered. Paul is saying, I'm suffering. Here I am, a prisoner in Rome. Which is why Paul says positively now, right? Negatively, do not be ashamed, but positively, but rather share in suffering for the gospel. So not only don't distance yourself, don't be ashamed of Jesus and the gospel, do the opposite and share in suffering for the gospel, which is a dramatic thing for Paul to call him to do. He's not telling him to just sympathize with suffering. He's not saying, hey, Jesus suffered, I'm suffering, don't be ashamed of me. Okay, sympathize with me. Okay, send me a letter, send me a note, come and see me because I'm having a, a very difficult time and you know this. So put yourself in, in my shoes and, and reach out to me and encourage me. He doesn't just say that. He actually calls Timothy to share in suffering for the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying Jesus suffered. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. He suffered. Nor of me, his prisoner. I am suffering. Jesus suffered, Timothy. I am suffering, Timothy. Timothy, you are going to suffer. Embrace the suffering. Is what he calls Timothy to do. Don't run from it. Don't wriggle out of it. Don't pretend it's not there. Don't just sympathize with others. But when suffering comes your way, Timothy, embrace the suffering that is going to flow from public allegiance to Christ 
and his gospel and your public devotion to his people. If you are in allegiance to Christ and His gospel publicly, and you are publicly devoted to Christ's people, you are going to share in suffering. So embrace that suffering. And he tells Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. By the power of God. Or if you have a New King James Version or a King James Version, or a New American Standard Version. It's a share and suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. He tells Timothy, he tells us, your suffering is going to be according to the power of God. At least in two senses. Because what does Paul mean by that? What does he mean that our suffering is in accordance with the power of God? Number one, the degree to which you suffer will be determined by the power of God. This is God's sovereign power. God is sovereign. God is exhaustively sovereign over everything and anything. That means that God is in control. That means that God is in control over the degree to which you suffer in your life. You never endure suffering and God is in heaven saying, Wow, that went worse than I thought. We don't ever endure suffering and God is is taken by surprise. When it says that we, that Timothy suffers and we suffer according to the power of God, one sense there is that according to the sovereign power of God. In other words, the degree to which we suffer is determined by the power of God. When you suffer a little, it is according to the sovereign power of God. When you suffer a lot, it is according to the power of God. When you have seasons of little suffering, it is according to the power of God. When you have seasons of much suffering, it is according to the power of God. Which is very good news. Because there's purpose. The second sense in which our suffering, though, is according to the power of God, is that the faith with which you suffer well is provided by the power of God. So the other way that our suffering is according to the power of God is it is according to His sustaining power. There is a way to suffer poorly and a way to suffer well. We suffer poorly when we suffer with no faith. We suffer well when we suffer with faith. Some of you look back at seasons of suffering in your life And you're ashamed because you did not suffer well. You were not faithful. You shook your fist at God. You cursed God. You were angry with God. You were ashamed of God. You ran from Him. You didn't run to Him. Some of you have had such disappointing dealing with suffering in your past, that you look forward to 
suffering in the future in hopes that you can handle it better than you did in the past and suffer well. If you suffer well, Timothy, if you suffer well, Veritas, if you suffer well, according to the power of God. In other words, the faith with which you suffer well, which is the opposite of shame. The faith with which you suffer well will be provided by the power of God. 1 Corinthians 10.13 You will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. I mean, it is clear that God will... Scripture talks about this. We're like a bruised reed. He will bend us. And you know what it feels like, some of you, to be bent so much that you are certain that you're going to snap, that it's going to break. But God bruises us. He does not break us. He does not bring an end to us. And He gives us the power to suffer well and faithfully and to see our good and His glory in it. But haven't you felt like you're under that weight and you're under that burden and you cannot endure any longer where the temptation is so strong that you cannot bear it And we are, in those moments, believing lies and not the promises of God. Because God says, I will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And it is His sustaining power in giving us the faith that we need to suffer. And we suffer according to the power of God. So Paul here charges Timothy, charges Timothy, do not shrink back from suffering for the gospel. Rather, embrace suffering for the gospel. Now, verse 9. He mentioned God in verse 8. The power of God And now he says this truth about God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. So this is what Paul is going to do now. Paul is going to give an account of his salvation and his calling. And he's going to do this from the perspective of God the Father. What does Paul's salvation and calling look like? Which is also what... Timothy's salvation and calling looks like, which also for you, Christian, is what your salvation and calling look like. And he gives it here from the perspective of God the Father. Right? We believe in one God in three, <laughs> in three persons. Right? This is the Trinity. One God in three persons, not three gods. Not one God manifesting Himself in three different modes over time, but one God in three persons. One God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Equal. Equal in power. Equal in significance. Equal in majesty. Equal in value. Equal in worth. Yet distinct in their roles. God the Father functions one way within the Trinitarian 
Godhead, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we see this with our salvation. And Paul's going to describe our salvation from the perspective of God the Father here, which is very interesting. But we know and can pick up throughout Scripture the different roles that the three persons of the one God play in our salvation. Right? God the Father is the administrator of our salvation. He oversees our salvation. He administers our salvation. He elects some unto salvation. He sends the Son to secure salvation. This is God the Father's role in administering our salvation. We see that God the Son secures our salvation. Makes our salvation possible. But through atonement. Through dying in our place on the cross. And then we see that in a moment in time, God sends His Holy Spirit to awaken us. To open our eyes to see and to hear and to understand how God has saved us. Here, Paul gives it from the perspective of God the Father. God the Father who, Paul says of himself and Timothy, saved us and called us to a holy calling. Now remember this, before we just see how Paul chronologically describes our salvation. Remember what Paul is seeking to do. Paul does not want Timothy to shrink back from Christ and the gospel. So what he does now to keep Timothy from shrinking back from Christ and the gospel, to keep Timothy from being a puny Christian, is he declares who God is, and how He saves us. And He says God saved us and called us to a holy calling. So here is our history, Christians. You know God has saved you and He has called you. God has saved you in the sense that He has rescued you from something. God has called you in the sense that He has called you to something. He has saved us from death. He has called us to life. He has rescued us from sin and the consequences therein leading to death. But He has saved us to life. Life with Him. Life because of Him. Life for Him. A life of increasing righteousness where we're made more and more like Jesus becoming more and more pleasing and honoring to God. And now Paul gives, in verse 9 here, starting a chronological account of how God saves us and calls us. So the summary is here, verse 9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, and now an explanation of how God does this. The first thing Paul says, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Why does Paul say this over and over and over again? Over and over again, Paul says, 
You know, God has saved you. God loves you. God has died for you. And then he follows it with, but this is not because of your works. This is the reason. When we, as sinners, hear that God has saved us, that God has affection for us, that God loves us, that God is giving us wonderful gifts, that He's giving us an inheritance, that He's taking us into His eternal kingdom, that He has chosen us. And when we get that God has saved us and loved us in this wonderful, special way, in a way that He hasn't loved Him, and He hasn't loved her, and He hasn't chosen Him, and He hasn't chosen her, and not everyone is going to this heaven and to this place. As sinful human beings, when we hear that God has done this great thing for us, we take that to confirm there must be something wonderful about me. And when I hear God's love for me and His saving me and His rescuing me and His taking me from darkness to light into eternal life, when I hear that, that must be the confirmation that I have been looking for that yes, indeed, I am amazing and special and unique and He is not. And so we take... God's salvation, and we make that an echo of my worth and my value. And so one of the nails that Paul is always nailing into the two-by-four when he talks about how great God's love for us is this. Make sure that you don't start thinking that it's because of your works. He says as much in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. Because what we naturally do, when we hear that we have been chosen, we start to boast. Right? It, it is elementary school, playground, getting picked for teams in dodgeball all over again. And if you pick me, and if you choose me, my assumption is not that that decision is based in the, the nobility of this fellow fourth grader and him wanting to show me great love and kindness. My assumption is that he's seen me play dodgeball. He saw, I almost took that kid's head off last week, bleeding in the office. It was amazing. He knows how good I am. He knows my skills. And of course, he wants me on his team. And so when we hear that God has chosen us and elected us and saved us and loves us, we immediately go to the same boasting. And so Paul over and over and over again, even in Timothy, says, Timothy, he grabs him by his collar, not because of your works. I mean, you and I have done some great things, haven't we? I mean, we've done some good things. 
We've said some good prayers, haven't we? Done some good deeds. We saw others back down when we didn't. We saw that family fall apart, but our family hasn't fallen apart. We saw that child grow up to become a Christian. My child. We saw that guy's child not grow up to become a Christian. And sinfully, sinfully we think that that's a part of God's love for us. That we're one of the good guys. But Paul makes clear over and over and over again that when God was picking teams, there was no bad guys and good guys. It was all bad guys. Everyone. Not because of our works, but rather, but because of his own purpose and grace. The most famous place that Paul articulates this in Ephesians chapter 1. If you have your Bible, turn there. We'll read it. Just read it. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Where Paul, you'll hear the word over, listen for it. Listen for Paul teaching that our salvation is not because of works, but it is according to God's purpose. Like he says here in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Listen in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. By the way, this is one sentence in the original Greek. One sentence. So Paul here, when asked if salvation is by works, this is him taking a deep breath, asking his listener to sit down, and this is the one sentence. No period until the very end. Listen to what Paul says and see if our salvation is about our works or if it is according to God's purpose. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of His glory. Period. (laughs) That is His response to our thinking that we have something to do with our salvation. Do you see what is so glaringly missing from His account? Your work. My work. 
nowhere in here. He is saying not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. He goes on. Which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Which he gave us. Salvation. Which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. Paul is saying that God gave you grace before creation. He is saying that God loved you in Christ before creation. Now do not hear that and think, I got it. Because this is a concept that we could spend the rest of our lives trying to get, and you would not get. So if you think that you got it, you don't get it which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is what Paul is saying. This is truth from God to you, Christian. God knew you. God loved you. God set His affection on you. God purposed to save you before He created you. Now take a step back. Paul actually says, before he created anyone, before he created anything, this happened before the ages began. Back then, in eternity past, God gave us salvation in Christ Jesus. God has been loving you forever. Forever. Before anything in time as we know it, God set His affection on you. Before God said, let there be light. Do we, do we hear that love? This is before, this is insight into before Genesis 1. This is insight into the mind and heart of God before Genesis chapter 1. This is before, let there be light. This is before the black felt board with the sun on it. Remember that when you were a kid? The black felt board. It was nothing. This is before Mrs. Smith put the sun on the felt board. Before the sun went on the felt board was God knew you and God loved you. And somehow, this is to help Timothy not be ashamed of God. You're going to see increasingly in Paul's words here, a tone of, How could you be ashamed of this God? He gave it to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
so God loved you before the ages began. And this is who Jesus is. And this is one of the things the cross is. It is that eternal love of God for you being manifested. It is God coming into history and manifesting His love for His people. God's love began then. It is manifested now through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. What has He done? He has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So this is Paul's timeline that he's giving for himself and for Timothy. This is your timeline. This is my timeline. This is the chronology of God's love for you. I want you to get some dates in your head. I want you to think of the year that you were born. 1977. I want you to think about the, for me, I want you to think about the year that you were created. Right? For me, I was born in 1977, but it was February. So I was created nine months before. 1976, God created me. I want you to get that date in your head of when God made you. And I want you to get the date in your head of when God saved you. Okay, when everything changed. When you were, the Bible says, reborn. When you were regenerated. When your eyes were open to see and your ears were open to hear and your heart was open to feel and your mind was open to conceive who Christ is and what Christ had done for you. And so this is Paul's timeline and yours to be mine. That pre-life, God loved you. Pre-creation, God elected you. pre The Garden of Eden, pre-Adam, God knew you and loved you. In approximately the year 33, God died for you. God sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. For me, fast forward, in 1976, God created me. God made me. Fast forward, we'll say the year 1986. God opened my eyes to see, opened my ears to hear, opened my heart to feel, opened my mind to conceive how long God had been loving me and how God had loved me and how God promised to continue to love me. By salvation through Jesus Christ. With different dates, that's your testimony, Christian. Now, what is amazing for all of us to think about is that God loves us in that way. God loves us for that long and God knows us. If you don't, deep down, I mean, have a self-inflated view of yourself. If you know what no one else in this room knows. And you know how dark it's been. 
And you know the depth of shame. And you know regret that seems insurmountable. And you, you know. You know. And you remember that God knows this. That God knows the sin that you have committed that you can't get over. That God knows the sin that you're in right now that no one else knows about. That God knows the sins that you will commit, perhaps more grievous than the sins you've already committed. That He knows all of that. He knows you totally. He knows you completely. And yet He set His affection on you before the ages began and sent His Son to die for you and created you and opened your eyes to know His love for you. To think that the degree of which God loves you is at highest capacity. And people in my life that I love, my love for them, I feel like it grows. It increases. Right? As you get to know people, either your love for them decreases or it increases, right? I can honestly say that with my wife and children, that's it, with my, just kidding, with my wife and children, the more I know them, the more I love them. My wife and I have been married for 12 years. I loved her 12 years ago. I thought thoughts like I couldn't possibly love her more. And I'm pretty sure today I love her more. I, I need her more. I cherish her more. I depend on her more. I know more about her, and I love what I know about her. And my feelings for her and my affection for her is greater today than it was 12 years ago with with each of my boys, my daughter. I love them more today than I did when I first met them. Those of you who are parents know that you love your children before they're even born. That's the weirdest thing. You've never met them. You don't know what they look like. You have no idea what their personality is, and you love them. You know, you, you talk to them, you sing to them, you, you pray to them, you think about them, and you've never even met them, and it's real, genuine love. And when they're born, you think to yourself, I don't think I could love anyone more than I love this child. And then you find over the years that you actually have capacity to love them even more than you did when they were born. Or if you're like me and you keep having kids, I thought, how am I going to love other kids as much as this kid? I mean, there's my love tank, right? And it's going to get emptied. So I dump it all on, dump it. <laughs> so I dump it all on my wife and one kid. I'm not going to have any left to pour. I'm, we genuinely worried about that. And yet what happens? Number two comes, number three comes, number four comes, number five comes, and God just miraculously gives us the capacity to love them all and to love them the same. We have this book about a mama bear and three baby bears, and they ask, which one of us do you love the most? Who's your favorite? And they go to each of them and they say, you're my favorite, you're my favorite, you're my favorite. I love you all as much as I could possibly love anyone. And yet, two years from now, I will love my children even more. I get to know them. I get to know their personality. I get to know their struggles. I get to know the funny things about them. And my heart is drawn more and more to them. My love increases. At some point, I assume, it's going to tap out. 
I assume at some point nearing my death, I will have achieved the maximum level of love for my children as my life comes to an end. And I will no longer have time to grow in love for them. So here is what this is telling us about God's love for you. God's love for you has been at the highest level since before the ages began. His love for you is the same yesterday, today, forever. It is at maximum capacity. It is full. He loves you more than anyone could ever love you. And He has been loving you like this for eternity past. And He will love you like this for eternity future. At the highest possible level. You will not and cannot and will never comprehend how great God's love is for you. But it's manifested through the appearing of Jesus Christ. This is what God says. This is how much I love you. This is how much I love my children. This is how much I love my bride. I will die for you. I'm God. And I will die for you because of my love. Paul says, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. So Paul is giving Timothy an account of his life, his salvation and calling. He's saying way back when God elected me and God saved me. And then God called me to be a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. And this is why I suffer. Again, Paul is saying that he suffers because God has called him to suffer. He blames God. Which we would think would lead to shame. Distance yourself from Christ then. Paul is saying that God's love for us and God's grace to us is expressed through a little suffering on the way to heaven. And do you know what? That's, that's what the Bible calls our suffering. Some of you have laughed when you read Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 4 when he calls our great suffering momentary afflictions. <laughs> this does not feel like a momentary affliction. That sounds like a poke. And you felt extreme amounts of pain that feels unbearable, right? God's perspective, momentary affliction on your way to heaven, on your way to glory. Paul is saying, God has called me, God has saved me, and this is why I suffer. Because God's love for you is expressed Not just through giving you the strength to get through suffering, but God's love to you and grace to you is expressed through bringing suffering into your life. This is why we suffer as we do. But Paul says, I am not ashamed. He gives a case for why he may be ashamed. I'm suffering because of Christ. All I have to do is be ashamed, distance myself from him, from His gospel, from His people, but I am not ashamed. Why? For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. 
He says, for I know whom I have believed. Paul, why are you not distancing yourself from Christ? Why aren't you throwing in the towel? Why aren't you giving up on this? Look at what you're enduring. And he says, because of whom I know. Not what he knows. Not what he knows, but whom he knows. What he knows is important. What you and I know is important. Our theology is important. Our doctrine must be sound. But your doctrine means nothing if it does not lead you to love God more. It is worthless. Paul says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. He says, I am not ashamed, for I know Jesus. And he's convinced about something in regards to Christ. I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. What has been entrusted to Paul, his life, his ministry, his salvation. And he is confident that Jesus Christ will keep that. It echoes his words to the church in Philippi where he says, God will bring to completion the good work that he began in you. He knows God is able to do this. And so he charges Timothy to pay attention and to remember these words, verse 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What Paul is saying to Timothy is, Timothy, if you keep in mind, here's his argument, if you keep in mind who God is and what God has done, this will keep you from being ashamed. This will keep you from being a puny Christian. It will keep you from hiding it under a bushel. It will keep you from shrinking back. It will keep you from distancing yourself from Christ and from His gospel and from His people. If you remember who God is and what God has done for you. And then he closes this section with a couple examples. An example of those who stood tall, or one man who stood tall and suffered well, and another couple who were ashamed of God. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. It's always funny to try to pronounce these names. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service that he rendered at Ephesus. So he gives an example of two men. Their names show up in the Bible, but not in a good way. Pretty cool to have your name in the Bible, but not in this way. Phygelus and Hermogenes that were ashamed of the gospel, that were ashamed of God. Here, by the way, the, 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 the depth of Paul's suffering and his loneliness, not an overstatement, when he says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Americans, we get depressed when someone refuses our friend request on Facebook or someone takes us off their friendship. Paul was Dumped by an entire continent. He says, all who are in Asia have turned away from me. 
He's down to one guy. I mean, Luke is there as a scribe, riding with him and for him. And then Anesiphorus. And he was, what does he say? There's that word again, not ashamed of my chains. Here's a man who did not distance himself from Christ, or distance himself from the gospel, or distance himself from God's people. In conclusion, a couple thoughts in regards to the main theme in this passage, ashamed. There is proper shame and improper shame. There are things you and I should be ashamed of, and there are things you and I should not be ashamed of. There is well-placed shame. And misplaced shame. Well-placed shame is this. It is shame that is a lonely and piercingly painful emotion. That is from our consciousness of our guilt over sin. And it leads us to the cross. That is well-placed shame. When you are conscious of the guilt of your sin, and it leads to a lonely and piercingly painful emotion. And those of you who have experienced shame, you know. There may not be an emotion that is more difficult to bear as human beings. But shame is well-placed when you are conscious of your guilt over sin, and it is a lonely and painful emotion that leads you to the cross. So shame has an end. When God created us with a capacity of all different emotions, and we have the capacity to feel this emotion of shame, the purpose of shame is to lead us to the cross. It is to feel the guilt of our sin and to beat our chest And to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And many times we will not go to the cross unless it becomes really painful apart from it. And we realize the futility of trying to do it on our own. And we turn to Jesus with that immense pain and say, forgive me. And when we do that in faith and sincerely, we have relief in Christ. Now that is the the purpose of shame. And we see that shame in the Bible. You see Adam and Eve experience that shame in the garden. Well-placed shame. You see that shame take place between Peter and Jesus on the beach after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. As Peter remembers, big, bold, outwardly confident, I can take anybody, Peter. I will die for you tonight, Jesus, Peter. When three times in one night he denies even knowing Jesus. And he's deeply ashamed. Or it's the well-placed shame that is described in 1 Corinthians 15.34. Where Paul says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. And do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul says to the Corinthians, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. 
And that is a powerful thing to say. And that is a heavy thing to say. And Paul says, because of your sin, you should know the depth of your sin. And that should lead to a lonely and piercingly painful feeling in your soul that I hope leads you to the cross. But the other reality is misplaced shame. Quickly, four misplaced shame. The last one that we see in Paul's writing here. Number one, some of you feel shame as defined a moment ago. Some of you feel shame far too long. Friends, shame is meant by God to be a temporary emotion that is transformed into joy. In fact, the greater the shame, the greater should be, at some point, the joy. If you're a Christian who stays ashamed far too long, if the pain stays, it is owing to your unbelief in the promises of God. You're not believing the gospel. And you're not believing his forgiveness. Do you remember how Jesus dealt with the sinful woman who came to him when he was in the Pharisee's house? She came in and worshipped Jesus and was seeking mercy, was seeking forgiveness, while the other men mocked her. And do you remember how Jesus cared for her? Do you remember how he, he confronted these men who were mocking her? And if you read the text carefully in Luke chapter 7, you read that he addressed these mocking men who were telling her, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. He addressed them, but as he addressed them, the scripture says he was looking at her. He was ministering to her and saying, you men ought to be ashamed of yourself. And he tells her, you have been forgiven. Go in peace. Not shame. Peace. That is misplaced shame. Number two. Some of you feel shame over the sins of others. This is especially true in our culture where so many have been sexually assaulted. Statistics would say that one in four women has been sexually assaulted. One in six men has been sexually assaulted. And many people who have been sexually assaulted, it's a reality in our world, carry a deep shame over sins that were not committed by them, but sins that were committed to them. And yet, some of you have experienced this, or you are today, and there is a deep and painful shame. Because you think that you did something, or that you are something, 
that deserved that kind of abuse, that warranted that kind of abuse. And many are silently in shame. And it is the good news is that it is a misplaced shame. And there is nothing to be ashamed of. Number three. Some of you feel, this is a lesser degree now, but some of you feel embarrassment, which is a kind of shame. Embarrassment is like a watered-down shame. And some of you feel embarrassment not over sin, but over a shortcoming or an impropriety, over something you did that was foolish but maybe not sinful, or over the way that you look or a certain feature of your body or some aspect of your personality, something that maybe you cannot help or maybe something that you overlooked or you showed up somewhere and didn't observe the the dress code or whatever it is. We've all experienced this and we feel ashamed. Or maybe you prepared for some kind of an athletic competition and you did everything that you could do. And then when you entered into the race, you finished in last place. And there's nothing to be ashamed of, but you feel shame and a sort of embarrassment. And this is often because you're weighing more and being influenced more by popular opinion than God's opinion. And number four, and finally, and this is what Paul is talking about here, some of you feel Shame, crippling embarrassment over Jesus Christ and His gospel and His people. It's a concern with what people think more than what God thinks. And because others hate Jesus, because others mock Jesus, and because others laugh at Jesus... We are tempted to distance ourselves from Jesus. To be, as Paul would put it, ashamed of Jesus. Shame should come from displeasing God. Shame should not come. Shame should come from displeasing God. Shame should not come from displeasing others. But we get this backwards. It is inevitable for us, even though we don't live in first century Ephesus, it is inevitable for us that we will suffer at some point in our life and it will be directly because of our love for Jesus and His gospel and His people. And you and I may be tempted to not embrace this suffering, but to be ashamed of Christ, to be ashamed of His gospel, or to be ashamed of other real Christians. And to save ourselves the embarrassment, and to save ourselves the consequence, we may be tempted to distance ourselves. Paul's words, do not shrink back. Do not be a Christian who distances yourself from Christ and His gospel. Do not be faithless. Be faithful. Do not be ashamed of Christ. Everything that Paul articulates here is demonstrated through the cross of Christ, which we remember every week in communion.
After I pray and we take communion together, I'd encourage you whether you read these words or think through these words to remember, as God calls us to, who God is, who your God is, and what your God has done. How He has saved you. How He has loved you. And may God bring to our minds the ways, maybe subtle, maybe overt, the ways that we are ashamed of Him. The ways that we deny Him in our own heart, in our family, with our friends, in our workplace. And may God bring conviction to our hearts as we remember the cross of Christ. And may we be moved to not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day that you've given us. God, there are probably some of us here today who need to be ashamed, and there are probably some here today who do not need to be ashamed. God, I pray that if there is an unbearable shame for some here today that is misplaced, that you would begin to ease that burden, that you would lift it from them, that you would move them to talk with someone, that you would move them to bring your people in so that they can be encouraged and hear the good news and hear the gospel. I pray that if some of us have been ashamed of you and have not been bold in our convictions for hurtful words said and helpful words unsaid, when we have shrink back from our responsibilities and not represented you well, when we have hidden it under a bushel, God, we pray that if we have been ashamed of you, that you would cause us now to be ashamed of sinning against you in this way. God, may we be a people who, before the heat is turned up in this nation and before we endure suffering like our forefathers have, may we be a people who don't take place of the relative comfort that we have. May we be a people who even now are not ashamed of you. For we know, God, that there is a threat here that if we are ashamed of you now, What would we do under real persecution? So God, break us of this sin and cause us to share in suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.